Welcome, episode one of Future of Beauty Unfiltered podcast. We've got an amazing guest with us today, Joseph Harwood. Um, so Joseph is a British gender non-conforming artist and beauty expert, a pioneer on social media. Jojo became the first transgender person to brand and monetize beauty content within the UK, reaching over 100 million views across LGBT content and beauty tutorials. Winning the digital version of America's Got Talent, Simon Cowell's The Generation Competition. Harvard went on to be featured in the YouTube year and in review and the Google homepage to create campaigns for the UN on plastic pollution as a result of the beauty industry and is a Prince Trust ambassador. Now a trained cosmetic formulator, your focus today combines product design in the beauty industry with inclusivity, creating guidelines within corporate structures and insight into digital media. Welcome, Joe. I'm so excited to have you here. Oh my God, that intro. Like my partner writes my intros and I always think they're so grand. <laughs> I love it. You've done so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's I've been working professionally for 16 years and I'm just 31. So that should show you how early I started. But yeah, thank you. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's amazing your story. I remember speaking to you, you know, when we were actually chatting about getting you kind of to be part of the podcast. And I think your journey of where you've come from and actually the things that you've called out within the industry, I think is a really amazing opportunity. So obviously the whole point of future of beauty unfiltered for us is we do every single year large pieces of independent consumer research within the health and beauty category okay over 2,000 respondents on loads and loads of different topics from sustainability to social purpose and I think one of the key things that came out in our most recent piece of research that we did was the strength of community and actually, particularly the LGBTQ plus community for me was something that really, really stood out in our results around um, not only wanting to empower their own community, but all communities, whether they're in it or not. Um, and I think what I found really amazing about you is, you know, you've got an incredible story as to how you entered the beauty space. Can we can we talk a little bit more about that and, and how you've got to where you are today? Yeah, of course. Um, so I guess I should go to the very beginning because I grew up in a village called Myloke, which is outside of Brighton, but it's not, um, right, everyone thinks like Brighton, okay, that's a really open place. But where I lived, it wasn't like that. My family actually were very religious and I grew up living in a church and there was no one like me and I couldn't even enter the house with a Diamante sticker on my face without um, being told off by my granddad who was like a preacher or like a vicar. Um, so I was kind of like this odd creature that had landed in this very kind of like small conservative village, village. and, and I, I just had to be myself, myself. Like I was going to weave shops and buying like weave and doing colourful hair to go to school and getting in trouble and things from like 12 years old, 11 years old. And um, juxtaposed with that, I was also well ahead of my school years because when I was about eight or nine, um, you do a CAT score test and my CAT score was so off the charts that they insisted I do a GCSE at the age of nine. So I began doing my education in a separate class to my school. So it wasn't just that I was different visually, it was that I was put in a different classroom to everyone else in my year. So I just created a fantasy world in my head and I started to design characters and I started to think about how I could become the characters, which sounds really stupid, but it was my 
sort of catharsis in into being myself. I looked like a girl, so there was no one else that looked like me. It was completely organic. It happened on its own, and. I just didn't know what to do. So I started to lose computers. I loved all the stuff I could do on computers and learned to do Photoshop when I was a kid. And I put all my stuff on MySpace. When MySpace was um, in its kind of conception, there was like a big scene kid and emo thing happening. And for some reason, it, it allowed me to be seen in that light, even though I would never have identified myself as that. It just promoted me to the front. And by the age of 14, I had a huge audience on MySpace. And it scout I was scouted by um her name was Katie and she was an editor in Days to Confuse, but she was actually casting for Alexander McQueen's McHugh um, book, which was the first Alexander McQueen dispersion line. And I told my mom, and my family couldn't believe it because obviously being in a conservative little place, to think that little old me had somehow used a computer and be scouted by Alexander McQueen, it was like unheard of. So we went to London for my first ever casting. And from that, I became a very successful androgynous model. And this was years before there were any talk of non-binary. I was presenting in a sort of naturally kind of like alternative way, but I was cut, my hair was cut like David Bowie and Aladdin Sailing in the Spiders from Mars, kind of Ziggy Stardust thing. Amazing. And from that, it took me all over the world. I was working in Tokyo by the age of 17. And I think when you're put in front of a camera and you're working with makeup artists from Estee Lauder and Shiseido and Nas, you start learning the, the tricks of the trade. And I wanted to continue using MySpace, but I had this horrendous, horrendous experience on a photo shoot where I was doing an editorial. And um, me and another androgynous model that was also um, out of my era called Flo, we mm -hmm. were booked to do all the Banksy artwork in London. So we were in a van and we were being driven around all the different Banksy artworks and being put in ball gowns and all this stuff. And the photographer thought I was a cisgender woman and was really funny with me the whole shoot. And I felt so uncomfortable because I was probably about 16. And we were getting dressed in the middle of the street and I just didn't know, I didn't have any support of a manager there. And I was just like, this is too much. I mean, this is really scary because I didn't have any protection. So I thought, Do you know what? I'm going to come up with a moniker, almost like a drag name. I'm going to call myself Joseph Harwood, which was my mum's maiden name, um, a boy version of my name. So it confused everything, but it created this sort of character that I could brand. And from that, I learned to brand myself. And I started to put out tutorials. From 2018, I began working with Mac. I did a Terry Barber Moss class when I was still 17. And it opened me up to doing professional makeup. And then I just started to put everything I learned from all the things I did as a model, then I, all the stuff I started doing as an assistant in makeup, and I put it on YouTube. And I think because at the time, there wasn't any representation and people would never have expected someone to look like me but have my voice. <laughs> and it always used to shock people and, and people couldn't get over it. And I think because of the time frame, because I was the first person to look like that and to be someone in the trans umbrella, it blew up. And I remember when BuzzFeed did an article about me when Miley Cyrus Wrecking Ball came out because I did all the celebrity transformations and I was morphing in photo real versions of Marilyn Monroe and Liz Taylor. And it blew up. It went around 90 publications all over the world. And from that, all the big makeup artists in the world that were also part of the androgynous scene of the 80s and the late 70s reached out to me. So I got all this support from people working with Pete Burns, from the Blitz Club, Matthew Addison, like all these massive makeup artists that were part of um, New York and London's nightlife pushed me to the forefront. So I remember when Matthew Anderson, who used to do RuPaul's makeup, and he was a producer on RuPaul's Drag Race at the very start, he um, promoted all my makeup work. And then all the Drag Race girls started to notice who I was, and they started to adopt all my techniques. Like my, I used to draw all my hairs in my eyebrows on, because I didn't have any eyebrows at that stage, and um, the type of contour I did. And 
I started to develop this makeup portfolio where I was doing LGBT celebrities and the Scissor Sisters and then doing these magazine covers with these adult film stars and dressing them in drag and becoming like these huge artistic pieces. And I ended up doing a coffee table book with a man called Greg Bailey. It's called All Right Darling, where we put all the RuPaul Drag Race girls in my style of makeup. Mm-hmm. And it just it just became extraordinary. And then eventually I found out about a competition Simon Cow was doing, which was based on Got Talent, but hosted by YouTube Originals. And it was a format that was different to a live show because it was done on social media. So you divided it into 12 categories over 12 months. So you would start off at the beginning of the month sending in your submission of a video. Then they bring in a judge who'd choose the winner of that category. And then overall, you'd win a six-figure cash prize and you'd be the grand title winner of this first version of Got Talent Online. And it was a huge promotion. Like It was on Entertainment Tonight. It was mostly focused on American press as they would do an American Idol launch. And they brought in Pixie Woo, who at the time were the biggest, biggest, biggest bloggers um, in beauty. And they saw my work and couldn't get over it because I think... Um, Sam from Pixie Woo is really, she was aware of all the Blitz references in my work and she kind of got where I was coming from and she just loved it. So they chose me as the winner. But despite them choosing me as the winner, the competition did not expect them to choose me as the winner. They wanted someone to market who was more contemporary. Mm -hmm. So this is before Caitlyn Jenner transitioned. This was before even Conchita Verse won Eurovision. There was no examples of someone androgynous winning a huge talent show and they shut down all my press and I really didn't I didn't see it as a negative thing at the time because I still have my own audience so I was still working non-stop but Forbes recently which brought attention to this they wanted to do an interview about me and I didn't know what to say because I I think they wanted me to 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 kind of say look how horrible my life has been because it brings more like audience members to look at the article but I had no that wasn't the the intention of doing the article the article was saying look, you can overcome any type of obstacle, even if people don't believe in you and you still continue to work hard, you can achieve whatever you need to do. So it really was a sort of full circle moment because it was just after everyone had got back to work post pandemic and this big feature came out that, no, it's, I've never I've never complained about it. I, I like the cash. I got the cash. I was able to take my mom to Paris and buy a dishwasher, like things that I never could afford when I was a kid. And mm. I, I liked it. It was good. Anyway, that was my um, my early starts. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, what an incredible journey, right? And I think um, I think there's a lot of learnings. And, and I think you're absolutely right. You know, um, the kind of you've called out a few celebrities, so to speak. I think Eurovision, obviously, I, I remember that moment with Conchita. It was just an incredible moment. Um, and I think, you know, with regards to kind of the community and the following that you had, particularly around your makeup. So, you know, um, the, the makeup industry has so much potential. I mean, it's already, you know, we're, we're kind of really pushing the boundaries. There are brands that are now bringing in over 400 different shades to make sure that it's as inclusive as it can be from skin color point of view. And there's still a lot more work that can be done. But I think one of the things that I always find really interesting um, is particularly men within the makeup category, you know, um, whether you're kind of in your position or um, even if you're kind of just a straight man wanting to go as a man, but actually choosing to wear a bit of makeup, it's still quite restricted. And I think people really openly talking about the opportunities within there. The assumption is it's just for women. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, you know, particularly what you've done when it's kind of creating these amazing celebrity looks and the ways in which you're working, um, one of the things that I thought was really interesting um, in the research that I mentioned earlier is your brand Too Woke was we found that the trans community in particular was the most engaged when it came to causes 
but not only for their own, um, but other communities, as I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. 27% of LGBTQ plus people believed it was really, really important to take a public stance in this area. Why do you think that is? Well, there's a couple of points that I want to go into from my own experience. So 2016 was a very pivotal year for so many reasons in terms of the representation of different types of people in the beauty industry. And what happened in 2015 is YouTube began to introduce AI algorithms into their search results. So what happened when you were doing pre-2015 YouTube? So when, when I started, like you had to do a piece of content and the way that the the search would work is if you were searching for how do I do an eyebrow you would see a list of people that were doing tutorials about eyebrows it wouldn't be connected in this specific AI way it was just an organic discovery process so people will be able to find you based on what you did when they introduced the AI it started to identify what you are but they didn't input information about trans people because trans, if you look at the internet search for trans, the majority of it is in adult content that's not suitable for adverts. So they brought in people, and I worked with YouTube from 2018 to 2020, and I spoke at, at, at tired lengths to the actual team that built the AI systems. I worked as a product tester doing other things because I really wanted to get to the bottom of this, and they said we didn't have the info. We didn't have the data and it screwed up everyone because when I was doing my my YouTube platform, I wasn't just doing my makeup tutorials. I built a platform called Perfect Androgyny, which was uh, in the UK. Androgyny was a way to describe people that didn't fit because they used to use the term gender bender in in the 80s. And all the people that were identified as that resisted that and called themselves androgynous. Mm -hmm. Some that were trans, some that were gay guys, some that were non-binary people. It was a way to label an umbrella that that considered anyone. You didn't have to be transgender or transsexual. You could be anything. It's, it was an open-ended um, label. And I put on so many different incarnations of people just because I thought they were amazing, creative people doing different things. And the focus changed between what people did, because you could get someone doing books on philosophy on YouTube, like reading them out, you could do film production, you could do makeup, you could do hair, you could do all manner of artistic things like sketching. There was a small amount of activism content, but it wasn't a huge thing. But it wasn't that there was a diversity because it wasn't about what you were, it was what you were doing. Then Mm. they put this AI algorithm in and the only way you could get found is if you were identifiable. So they cut off your subscribers. You had to resubscribe to everyone that had an audience. So everyone that had to go back to subscribe to you that was already a subscriber with a bell function. So it cut off all of these. There were so many trans people and non-binary people before 2015 doing different varieties of work, but they were then suddenly cut off from their own audiences. And because of this, in 2015 and 16, when I went to America and I was actually working with a manager that um, represented Manny MUA and Patrick Starr, who are cisgender guys who wear makeup. They're gay guys that are like boy next doors, not models. They're just boy next doors. Lovely. I met both of them. Manny grew up watching my videos and said that's the reason he started YouTube. But he was much more relatable. He was an understandable boy. There was no... You wouldn't confuse his gender identity at all from the way he presents. And when we worked with the management... 
I discovered that the big management agencies in, in the world were actually looking to sign social talent in 2016. So they brought all these social media talent over to a mainstream talent agency. And as we all know, the way that they get all these people out there is to leverage people into categories. So when they're booking an ensemble project, oh, we need a gay guy. Oh, we need a lesbian woman. Oh, we need blah, 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 blah. So they invented this category non-binary which didn't exist before. No one would ever use the term non-binary. It was something you you discuss in therapy. Or there are people like um, Kate Bornstein that wrote the book and Gender Outlaw. And it, it created a box that people could fit in so that they could leverage talent. And it was nothing to do with the organic community that was actually happening on social media. Because social media was a paid job. That was a really good pay. It was a workable income with no gatekeepers. So you saw people thriving because they could pay for what they needed to do to be themselves. Then this came and the talent agencies got involved and it stopped people like me from being able to be put to the forefront. So they wanted to then, the, the other side of this was Laverne Cox was coming out. There was um, uh, Janet Mock, Caitlyn Jenner was coming out and they had the power behind them because they were, uh, Laverne was on the hit show Orange is the New Black mm. and they saw the power of Netflix. She then created this new lane, which was different, which was the transgender activist. Mm. So then there's a new box. There's a new box that could be leveraged. Ah, we need to do a documentary talking about activism. Now we can sell a book through activism. And it created this whole, it's an orchestrated um, category that people have entered to join the talent and media world. And it's just, it's to me, it's so contrived because I saw it happen from the from the get-go and was part of the, the process of kind of being pushed to one side. I remember like thinking like when, when I, the Money and Me and Patrick Starr were being branded, they were with the same PR as YouTube as a business. So every time there was an article coming out about them, I'd be like, they're not even on YouTube yet. They're still a meme on Instagram. So why are they being taught, why are they being pushed to the forefront of these articles in Elle magazine? Look at these boys in makeup breaking boundaries. And to me, it was just a ridiculous thing to happen because neither of them were actually present on social media or had any weight on social media. And it's not because I dismiss their work or don't think they're talented because like, Patrick's a very talented makeup and I think Manny is very charming but it's it was created by a media thing and it's a very funny example because I'm great friends with John McLean who's a British um creator now they were trying to brand um Naima Tang the same management company were trying to brand Naima Tang who was a beautiful dark skin very dark skin black, black woman in, in the beauty community so they, when, when Fenty launched, launched and Rihanna came into the game and changed everything because she has the power to change everything she introduced this whole shade range inclusion thing, which was extraordinary. Yeah. But what they were trying to do, because um, my partner worked with Fenty on the creation of the Fenty line, so I got some, not not to break any non-disclosure, but I understood what the, what the workings were. Mm. They wanted to brand Naima Tang as being part of the Fenty wave because they suddenly produced foundations that match darker skin. So this company, this PR, put out all this stuff called the darkest shade. And my brilliant friend, John McLean, put out the palest shade. And because he's androgynous and doesn't fit into these boxes, they weren't giving him the time of day, but he, he slid in <laughs> through this big PR wave. I think it was the most funniest thing ever. And I celebrate my friend John so much for this because they really didn't expect that to happen. But that was like a testament that you can try and push people into these boxes. But if you're really brilliant, 
you're going to set yourself up to fail and they're going to shine regardless because that is an example of someone that's genius makeup artist talented person good ethics um so it's for me it's it's a mixture of two things it's to do with people coming into it with the right intention like rihanna there isn't enough shade ranges there certainly was reach and internationally but there wasn't regionally i remember going to tokyo and thinking why can i get white foundations in tokyo but in england they're all yellow didn't mm. make any sense but the that when you have the power and the marketing potential of someone like rihanna you can get those changes happening so i think when it comes to things like shade ranges and inclusion that's brilliant but I would prefer people to not be booked in adverts and beauty just because of what they are. I don't want to see someone that's just joined in Instagram be given the same credibility as someone that spent 10 years learning their craft. Mm. It, it doesn't make any sense to me. Like, that's not equality. That's preferential treatment. And it's also tokenizing people because, as I'm sure you guys know, like, when you're being paid to be in a, a social media campaign because you're gay... It's not a lot of money. Like, they're not paying you what Gigi Hadid gets if she's in the Maybelline advert. So it's, I, I really was motivated because I learned all the, the inner workings behind the scenes. And I thought, this isn't mine. I've got to do something about this because I don't wait for people to ask me to do things. I create opportunities for myself. And I always try and engage people and explain, like, look, I can do lots of different things. Let's try and create something new. And when I worked with um, the L'Oreal Innovations brand, Jessica Black, and I brought my designs to, to Jessica, who, who founded that brand, I said, well, we need to actually pay people. <laughs> you can't just like put people in the adverts. You're a cisgender white woman. You mm. need to pay the people that you're actually focusing the, towards. And I think, honestly, there's a bit of, when you were talking about why there's so many transgender people and LGBT people that are so passionate about activism, I think that there was a lot of people that were just seeing injustices and speaking up. But mm. there is also an element of this, which is I don't have any money at the moment because we're in an economic depression. And the way I can get seen on social media is to be an activist because mm. it's the role that people accept as as like I, I've gone to meetings about doing books about things in the past. And people have been like, well, you need to do like um tell all the negative stories you've had in your life and and how you overcame them. And I'm like. Why would I do that? That's the most silliest thing. Why wouldn't I do an inspiring mm. book? And it, but there's a marketability factor in that because you have to almost be, until you've got the weight of Rihanna and you can really change the game without worrying about fitting a box, they don't see what you can do. It's very hard to convince people because there's a lot of people that work in this industry that aren't creative or have an imagination. And you have to sometimes remind them that, they're, they're curating things. They're not actually creating things. And if you want to see the best quality art, let creative people be seen. You can't just see what's trending because it's going to make the most quickest money at the moment. And it, I'm sorry for that that very, very long answer with that, but I hope I sound reasoned and fair in my response because I'm not putting anyone down in any way. But I think no. that there is a lot of set-up machinations going on behind the scenes, which is destroy it's making things uniformed there's there's only one type of thing like whenever there's a tiktok trend everyone does the same makeup and mm. there's no organic process of of like what what that i always look out for people that come up with original ideas that i haven't seen before because it's never it's it's more rewarded if you do what's there already and i just want to see something new now because i've been doing it for so long i think it's more about authenticity at this stage isn't it like you say you know approaching kind of um a, a space your public stance whatever it may be from a place of authenticity and having a really strong understanding of your purpose um you know we spoke about that actually in um the last event that we did that i've mentioned now um and one of the key questions that came up 
uh, for our panel, you know, we had someone from Schwarzkopf and we had someone from Biosera London, which is obviously a smaller independent brand. So two very different sized brands. And the question was, do you really believe that bigger or smaller brands, you know, who has more of an opportunity to make a difference? And like you rightly pointed out with Rihanna and her approach, the bigger brand has got more exposure, more opportunity to be heard and actually potentially move the dial. But actually a lot of the time, what some of those smaller brands and independent people are doing actually can potentially be seen in a different way uh, because it's coming from, you know, it's owner led, it's owner driven. So there is a much clearer story and it's about having that authenticity and what you're trying to communicate. Um, one of the things I find really interesting, I want to talk a bit more about actually um, your, you mentioned your craft a few times around actually being a makeup artist and within that space. One of the things that I find really interesting within the category at the moment in particular is pre-pandemic, you know, particularly in the UK in comparison to other countries, we used to use makeup a bit more as a mask. So covering the blemishes or whatever, rather than and using it as like a creative canvas, whereas in the pandemic, people obviously wore significantly less makeup in general. We saw sales drop. We know that that happened. And actually, people's shift were more towards um, looking after that canvas and actually treating some of those skin challenges. So people's skincare regimes and things improved massively. Right. Um, but I think what's really interesting with you, as you've said, you know, different genders, different um, races, different skin types, different whatever it may be, the skin is different. And therefore, how you actually learn to use that and apply, I think, is really interesting. So I touched on men in the makeup category earlier. You know, you've got far more, you've got more kind of rough facial hair, poten potentially kind of bigger pores, um, all these other elements to it. When you were learning your craft, did you see that there was potentially a disconnect with the types of, and quality of products that were out there? Um, aligned with the different types of skin that you were trying to work with? Um, I, I think that for me, um, in the pandemic, I was really aware because I was doing a lot of research into um, the amount of people that were looking into cosmetic procedures because I know mm -hmm. a lot of them, because a lot of the clinics are still open because they were medical. Yeah. And um, I don't know, like, I, I, I think that people were interested in fixing themselves with the furlough because <laughs> I, I did this uh, I was working with a clinic because I wanted to get a hair transplant because over the years I've worn many wigs that have ripped my, a little bit of my hair out of the front I used to glue things down with a very silly glue it was very strong and I ended up getting a bit of a traction alopecia and I thought oh my god I'm just gonna put this back in and we were talking about like all the people that have been coming in during the pandemic and thinking about like what people are doing because they're seeing themselves on zoom for the first time they're assessing what they look like oh gosh and... yeah you look at your face more than anyone else on a zoom call now it's horrendous oh, <laughs> I think people got like a funny wake-up call because you're you're an autopilot most of the time when you're working but so many so many men particularly were investing in themselves, which yeah. I think was fantastic and a really mm -hmm. interesting thing to look at because the, everything when it comes to trends is cyclic. You can see like there was a huge amount of makeup in the 70s. Then in the 80s, it got kind of even heavier. There was makeup artists like Wade Bandy that was doing all these, because you had to make people, especially in fashion at that time, look like the, fit, the picture, the retouching wasn't inaccessible. It wasn't something that people could afford to do. So you had to make people look perfect. Then in the 90s, there was Kevin Aquan, who was doing these insane photorealist transformations, whilst also having 
mad medical health issues mid-shoot and taking two-hour rest caps, which like, no one really talks about, but I find fascinating even still, because I can't imagine, like, can you imagine starting someone's face, doing one of their eyebrows, having some sort of induced coma for two hours, then getting back up and finishing the eyebrow? They would look like Disney villain on one side and, and, and Susan Sally on the left. It would be crazy. Well, they are but, um, twins, apparently, eyebrows. <laughs> well, that that's maybe different to um, enemies, which is <laughs> going to happen after a, after a rest. But I don't know. Like, I think that um, the 90s when chic thing came in when Kate Moss came out and was like the star icon where people didn't want to wear too much makeup or wanted to make themselves almost drawn in their face. Um, yeah. I guess, like, aside from that... Um, we, we've seen Kim Kardashian come in and reintroduce all this contouring techniques and YouTube has made things accessible that people just learn. But I think at the moment, there's been a bit of a resistance to filters because I remember like, cause I, I was very interested in filters because in Japan, when I went to Japan, when I was a, when I was a kid, they used to have these things called Purikura machines, which are like the photo booths that you go in with your friends, but you could apply filters to them then. So this was like over 15 years ago now. So we're well, not over 15 years, just, 14 years ago but it was they had that technology available then and I think because the internet's introduced this sort of global phenomena where everyone can access each other's things it's kind of everything's blended together you see all these different you see Korean skincare coming to the UK for the first time like the Korean skincare was always like the the top tier skincare you see trends that you didn't see like contact lenses weren't huge in the UK color contact lenses I mean weren't huge here they were in other countries and I think there's there's still a lot of stuff that is it's dependent on what climate you live in because they used to oh my god I used to love when I was younger we when you couldn't get white foundations here I used to always order the Thai or the South, South America um, SPF powders because they mm. use SPF powders that mats your skin and makes you white <laughs> you couldn't get it here and I used to mix and match all these sort of international things and learn all these little secrets and tidbits and now I think like people have so much they're over it's like when you get that Netflix phenomenon where you don't know what to watch because there's so much choice and there's also all these like filtering and there's this um this idea of I think there's a deceptive quality to social media that people have caught on to it's almost like when people realize Millie Vanilli weren't the singers it's like there's people realize that there's so much that goes into making these people the the creatives that um they're presented as but they don't have the work behind it and and there's a mistrust and I think because of that mistrust there's now going to be growing this new sort of natural thing where makeup and skincare is going to be cleaner so you can wear it all day and it's going to improve your skin without adding pigment I mean mm -hmm. cosmeceuticals is something that I'm really interested in I'm actually working on a product at the moment which I've got so much to share about it's going to be so exciting because it's something that anyone can wear boy or girl and it won't actually put color on your skin so any color skin can use it but you know so it changes your skin entirely it's a quite extraordinary product I've been working on for two years now but I, I don't know. I think like everything's trend oriented. If if you if you're pushed in one direction, you tend to push back in a certain way, and and that's how trends form. But I do think that there is a real fun element of filters, and I, I hate when people think that there is some sort of like um, people are trying to trick you. Because I when I was a kid and I was always doing all these fun tutorials, I didn't have the the money to buy wigs at the time. I had no money when I started, but I had bright red hair. So when I put myself in front of 
the um, grey wall I would film on, I could use the same tactic as a green screen and change the colour of my hair. And I thought that was an ingenious thing to do. We were using the same editing software as a film. And I, I didn't think that was deceptive. I just couldn't afford to buy a wig. So there, I think that there is an artistic quality in all this digital stuff. And I love working with Aviv, which is an AI platform. I'm, I'm an advisory board member, in the, especially towards diversity and inclusion. But I, I really want to be involved in all this new wave. Like I love filters. I started on the filter wave very early when um, the pandemic started because I knew there would be a very tough time marketing stuff. So I thought, let me create a really nice softening filter called JH Skin. And it got used like 20 million times in three months. It was amazing because it marketed my platform, brought my Instagram views up and things. So I think everything has its place if you're artistic. It's just, I think it's very it's very sad when I, when I was walking along Oxford Street in London and I saw this young lady and she had extremely strong makeup which I thought was fantastic because I, I love all that geisha makeup I love I love strong looks and all these crazy looks because I used to do it myself when I was younger but <laughs> she was trying to look like Kim Kardashian through the filter it was almost like how the the film stars in black and white used to paint their lips blue because on camera it made your lips darker in black and white in the, the black and white film era. Mm-hmm. It was like that. I was like, they're, they're, they're trying to do... <laughs> it's come full circle. They're using a filter to blur everything together. But in real life, it was... It was heavy. It was very yeah, I, heavy drag. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I think <laughs> I think you're right as well. It really depends on what it's being used for and, you know, what you're trying to sell. So I, I think kind of... Um, some of the rules that have come in around actually, you know, if you're promoting a skin product or whatever that you don't use filters because then you're not actually seeing potentially some of the real results, I think it's a really interesting opportunity. But I also think that, you know, the power of this is is, is playful space. Um, <clears throat> I think, you know, one of the things that's really interested me, so you mentioned um, kind of your own skin and makeup line that you've been working on. Um, how did that kind of come about and what was the reason, I guess, for, for looking to develop that in the space? Because it's, it's already quite a, a saturated market, right? You know, no one's short sure yeah. of finding skincare and makeup products. So, you know, what was it that kind of led you to really go, I, I need to actually make a bit of a change and this is how I'm going to do it? Well, I spent my 16th birthday money I saved up on battery samples and makeup brushes because I couldn't find makeup brushes in the UK that would work. I wanted to do makeup design more than I wanted to do makeup. I never wanted to be known as a makeup artist. It was the curse of my career. Um, I love designing things. It's not just makeup. I I design every aspect of my life from furniture to perfume bottles to sculptures I do oil paintings I couldn't afford to buy clothes so I, I sewed all my own clothes and um, I I've got a brain where I have to be I'm very creatively fertile I really want to do um, as much as I can but I always think about things again with strategy and I wanted to do makeup from I, I started to actually promote a makeup line which I did in collaboration with Hakahodo which is the Japanese brush manufacturer in 2014. So I started before the this era of oversaturation in makeup or the merchandisation of makeup which I like to call it because it's like people sell lipsticks now like they're a t-shirt or like a merch thing it's ridiculous but I I don't like to do things that don't have a place. So I again, as we discussed with um, Rihanna earlier, I had to build a little bit more weight in my in my portfolio because no one understands if if you're different, they just don't see how you fit in. And so I had to prove to people I can fit in. So I started and I did my first. Um, skincare um, project which was with the brand Be Good. I designed a lip balm which won an award. That was in 2015 and it was available all over the, the UK in stores like Waitrose um, 
so I, I, that was my ambition. That was the, the I worked with L'Oreal in the brush contest because I wanted to get in with L'Oreal when I was younger. Um, so many things was leading me on the path to design things. But I found it really tricky because after I worked with that manager in America and they, they, they literally told me, you have to do Justin Bieber transformations, not Grace Jones. And they, they basically sabotaged my whole YouTube channel to, to make me a little bit more minimal in that space. They renamed all the titles of my videos in very strange ways. So you could only find me if you searched my name and not my content. So it, it was really annoying at that time. I got very upset with the whole industry at that time because I thought, you're really trying to make people celebrities, not artists. And I wanted to be an artist, not a celebrity. And I just took a very, very negative response to, to all of this boys in makeup boxing because I thought, this is so untrue. These, the people that I came up with, especially my, my, my sister who died, Sinestra, um, she was a trans woman that was probably the best makeup artist of all of us. She was so good. And I just think, like, there's no reference to her and she's dead. And she was an icon. She was more watched than everyone. So why is she not the biggest reference? And I think that, that, that to, to, to go through a loss like that and to think there's no historical reference to her, but they're really promoting these people that were viral from a meme it just offended me because it, it wasn't the truth of the industry it wasn't how things came to fruition but I wanted to train to be a cosmetic scientist because I thought that would get me in whether I'm in a box or not I could be a boy in makeup a trans activist or a pig as long as I got in the door I, I could do the work so I woke Roger Dove by pure chance invited me um to lunch because he was looking for a protege as a perfumer and um, I cheekily asked him for a reference and I didn't have the right aliens to get into a biochemistry masters but on the way of his reference and his wonderful kindness he's like the legendary perfumer um they let me in and I had to do this summer school at London College of Fashion to get into a Masters of Science um, course, which was so easy. It was I was surprised. I thought it would be a really hard science degree, but it wasn't. It was, it was teaching me more marketing than science. But it gave you a stamp that you could say, look, I've studied this in a lab. I can make makeup from, a, from this point of view. And that was an entry point to then go into brands and say, look, I'm not just the creative with the ideas. I've also got the, the knowledge of putting things together. And I think that there was such a big reaction, I think, when I brought these classic designs, because I used to mix my own designs with little pots and pans for the trans community on YouTube. From 2012, I worked with a brand called Extreme Makeup, and they sent me all the base products from Cryolink. So I would show all the people that couldn't afford to buy these expensive makeups how to um, contour your face to feel more at home in your body. And I designed all these products, and I had the trademark and everything set up. I, I didn't want to sell them commercially. I just wanted to give them to the community. Mm -hmm. And in 2017, um, Jessica Blackwell asked me to work with her on the Jessica Black line and L'Oreal Innovations to get under its wing. And uh, we launched with the two palettes. One of them included a little booklet that gave everyone um, more insight into how to do the makeup. And it just was met with such critical acclaim. Both of my designs won Beauty Bible Awards. And I think that they were a testament to, if you can do the job, then then let people do the job. And I was quickly directing the influencer choices because I wanted to, to ensure that people that weren't recognised by management but were really talented were included. And, and then, then I think who found out about all the work I do and they invited me to go to Paris and Barcelona and we spoke about all the diversity and equity and inclusion that they include in their marketing. So I did 10 ateliers with all the big brand heads from Jean-Paul Gaultier to Christian Louboutin to Charlotte Tilbury. And they introduced all the things that I submitted into their advertisements. So all the drag race queens that are now in the Lamal fragrance adverts of Jean-Paul Gaultier or doing the scandal adverts, they I'm really proud of that because that came from my example and, and my work. But it 
it's taken a long while because I think I've now I get into the industry and I go to events like CEW and I look at all these people that are really respected. A lot of people that are now respected fundamentally came from retail. They they didn't study chemistry. They didn't work as celebrity makeup at all. They they did more the retail side of things and were fantastic salespeople. And I think that's not a skill set that I'm so good at. <laughs> so there's different skills, but it's. I've always been motivated, like, again, back to the question of going on tangents, but um, if it's not there, I want to make it, and I want to make things better and, and improve things. And there's, makeup has been, like, this recipe that people just have been repeating and repeating and repeating for so many years. And there's, it, like, I remember working, I was working with a fragrance nose, it's, I, I'm not going to tell you his name because it would be way which brand I'm working with, but he was mm-hmm. saying in the, in the 70s and the 60s, they started to um, divide fragrance into male and female. And before then it was completely and utterly unisex, all fragrance. Mm. And, and it's the marketing that's divided those industries in half. So the cleanse, tone, moisturiser concept that I guess came from Clinique and similar brands to that, people still use that, even though we now see in Korea, there's a nine-step plan for skincare. So mm. it's, it's interesting how things change because it's it's marketing in some regards, I think. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, it's, quite, it's, it's interesting because Kim Kardashian's recently launched her um, another kind of element of her skincare line, Kim Skin. Um, and there's, I think there's 11 steps, 11 different types of products. And I think quite a few people have kind of looked at it and gone, wowzers, that is, <laughs> that's a lot more than three or four. And I think, you know, one of the things I think around marketing that's quite interesting, it's a conversation we have internally a lot. So we've got obviously um, a lot of X uh, kind of P&G uh, Cody Colgate, Palmolive kind of brand strategist in the business. And, you know, they're, they've got some amazing experience. But I think one of the things that I find really interesting is that marketing tends to sometimes go through phases and, and the fundamentals are kind of the same. And actually, it's how you can get creative to genuinely do something different. You know, you mentioned quite a few times about being put in a, a box or or whatever and I think what's really interesting about what you're trying to do is you're, you're not actually trying to put yourself in any box it's kind of allowing that versatility to do whatever whatever you creatively creative oh my gosh I can't talk today this is gonna this is gonna be a hard word to find <laughs> creatively decide to find um and I think that's where kind of evolving you know the makeup and the experience of the time and these concepts I think definitely it's coming more to the forefront in the last few years. Like you say, slowly the dial is starting to move, but there's, there's a long way to go. Um, the one question that, well, I've got two more questions for you. One is you've mentioned a few times around the difference between know, shades of powder or whatever it may be in kind of the Korean versus the UK market as an example. Do you think the UK market's got a bit of a way to go when it comes to the products or actually, you know, are there any other countries and kind of, um, I guess, brands and things as a market that we should be kind of looking more towards? Um, that's an interesting question because I I think it there's examples for, like, um, jo Malone is a really interesting brand because it's a namesake brand. So people think Jo Malone, okay, that's the, the wonderful lady, Jo Malone. But actually, she's got no affiliation with Jo Malone. She is actually working on a different company completely, and she sold it to Estee Lauder. And they are trying to look inclusive within their marketing within the Western world. So they put that wonderful black actor from Star Wars, the recent Star Wars films, in the campaigns. But then when the Joe Malone Asian 
uh, marketing came out, they replaced him with an Asian face because in the Asian market, they're not actually in agreement with the same principles of inclusion as the West. So what is strange to me is that companies are fundamentally one big organization. So there might be two divisions, but it's like when you look at Pride and you see the Emirates version of the company not have the Pride flag for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, you, I, I think that we need to stop looking at these mainstream big, big, big businesses and start looking at independent businesses and supporting independent businesses in different ways. And I think that one way that I think independent businesses should be actually um, championed is that when someone comes out with a product design or idea, the biggest hurdle is to finance that idea to the standards of a mass market product. And lots of different people, there's so many different creatives that don't think their dreams will ever come to fruition because they don't have a rich family member or someone to invest in them. And what I think is, is should be a great way of doing things is there should be, and I, I would like to trademark this idea, so please don't steal it, anyone listening. But I'd like there to be like a marketplace that people can submit ideas, almost like those innovation um crowdfund sites uh, but you, they're makeup ideas and then if someone comes up with a new idea for a product instead of it being like a scramble from all the brands to add that genius ingredient to their skincare or whatever it may be they can actually do their brand so you you invest in the idea you then receive the product in exchange for investment and in that process you're funding that business to start and you see this new wave of people that are actually idea driven and not people driven because what we're seeing at the moment is absurd when, you, when you're seeing someone like Kim Kardashian or Kylie Jenner who doesn't do their own makeup selling makeup products I think it takes a, a bit of a person with, with a small brain to, to buy that because you can't think that someone that's had their entire face rearranged by needles has a lip kit that works that doesn't make any sense to anyone like that how can that be but people want to buy into that brand because they love the kardashian show so it's merchandising but then the side effect of merchandising is all this excess so you look at these pr packages and people running around los angeles with a mini shed full of sand and then there's in the middle there's a small lipstick and you're like what the hell was that <laughs> what what was this packaging all about there's we're not like we should be looking at ways to put sustainable packaging or refillable packaging less plastics so i like ideas more than i like and um, buying things from people and i think more than like a territory thing that i want to focus on or a brand that i want to focus on it's more so that i want to just nurture indie brands that have got great ideas the people that are passionate about makeup or have just great ideas and i'd love one day to start this sort of like an online business venture where i could get people like to to share their ideas or their kind of like their blueprint of an idea and then if people love it it can go viral they can purchase mm-hmm. it before it launches and then fund the the business and we can see a growth in um genius products as opposed to people looking to build a business to sell it to a corporation. I think that corporate beauty should should be, it's great, it's brilliant. Look at what we've got, we've got all these quality brands. There's not that much diversity in ideas. And I li- I'd like that to be at the forefront. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that I love actually about the UK market in particular is we've got some amazing indie little underdog brands that are really nipping at the heels when it comes to thinking outside the box and actually kind of pushing these concepts and ways of thinking. Um, okay, last question for you, <laughs> as I could genuinely talk to you about this for hours. Um, oh, me too. <laughs> so last, last question is, um, if you could give one piece of advice to any brand marketeers listening right now on how to actually make a change, make an impact, make a difference, 
what would that be? Um, I think that the I've got I've got a couple of things. One is like a ground basis thing, and one is more like a principle thing. Like when you when you look at the infrastructure of these companies, there's not diversity behind the scenes. You see quite consistently the lack of representation behind the scenes. So if you're looking to look from the outside as if you have um, an avid interest in diversity and inclusion. I think you should look at employing people behind the scenes in permanent roles who actually can give you that working on on the go advice because often as we've been discussing with the British Beauty Council um, they bring you in if they're doing like a product for black hair at the very last minute but there's been no black um, people actually working on the product formulation that could have helped you in the beginning and mm. I think that we need to start looking at the infrastructure of companies and seeing if we're going to do a pride month do we actually represent or support the people of that community within our businesses so that's the first thing I, sh- I think everyone could be ad- ad- like advised upon because it's just the way that we need to go forward so I think um, there should be some sort of auditing process to see if it's just marketing or it is reality of that brand because I know for a fact for some they're, they're, they're marketing to communities that they're not a part of at all mm, um, just that diversity but, of thinking isn't it really oh yes oh yes and different reference points and things mm. that people would know on the go like when I was designing the products that would cover a beard if you don't have anyone in the in the, the formulation lab that's got a beard there's a fundamental problem with that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But the other the other advice is just be authentically yourself. And I'm I'm working on this amazing new um masterclass actually that's coming out and it's gonna be releasing on my platform. But I'm talking about the art of storytelling and how storytelling defines what your ideas are. And it's I think if you're actually coming up with an idea that maybe is you wanna do a, a fantastic lipstick. Who inspired you to wear that lipstick? Was it your grandma? Tell the story of what your grandma's lipstick smelled like. Create these memories in your products. Like, make them sensory. Make people emote with what you're doing because it's going to actually make people remember things. There's there's products that you can sell and once that shade ranges out, you can choose a new one. And that's like McDonald's in makeup. But if you've got a classic product that means something to you or a classic fragrance that means something to you, it will connect with you much stronger. And I think my advice for any brand that's looking to, to make a big mark is to just be authentic to your own story because that's people fall in love with with people fundamentally and if, you, if it's good and quality then they're going to keep on coming back to buy it so that's oh, my advice you said <laughs> thank you I cannot wait I'm definitely going to be watching that masterclass that sounds like an oh thank you <laughs> <laughs> well um look thank you so much for joining me today it's been so wonderful to talk to you and just hear I guess all the different experiences and viewpoints and I really really appreciate you giving us your time today so um yeah thank you so much again and I will speak to you soon Oh, thank you. And I was rambling on because I'm so passionate about certain things and I'm so privileged to be asked to be a guest on on this platform. I'm so, I love all the work you do and I thank you. Oh, thank you so much. All right. Bye.